0: More than a 100 years ago, a Yiddish-language newspaper was born on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. It was called the Jewish Daily Forward. The paper was created to educate Jewish immigrants about their new country and share stories of Jewish life around the world. The Jewish Daily Forward is still in existence today. It's now a weekly published in Yiddish and English and known simply as the Forward, Over the past century, the newspaper has amassed a massive collection of photographs depicting Jewish life both here and abroad. To be exact, there are 40,000 pictures in the paper's archive. 500 of them have made their way into a new book called A Living Lens. Good morning, I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Glad you're with us this morning. Joining me in the studio this morning is the Forwards Arts and Culture Editor and the editor of A Living Lens. Alana Newhouse, welcome to Cityscape. Thanks for coming in.
1: Thanks so much.
0: April 22nd, 1897 is an important date in Jewish history and in the history of American journalism. Tell us why.
1: That is the first day that the Jewish Daily Forward hit the streets. Um, It was edited by Abraham Kahan, who was a recent immigrant. Um, It was actually one of, I believe at the time, 13 Yiddish newspapers on the Lower East Side so on April 22nd, 1897, it was not important yet. Um, although there was clamoring on the street, apparently. Um, people knew that it was, that was going to be their first day of publication and they were waiting for it. But we did enter into a very crowded field.
0: Jewish folks here clearly not assimilated yet to American culture.
1: That's right. Although they were very, um, a very literate group of people. Um, they all, many of them spoke and read Yiddish, um, and wrote Yiddish, which is an interesting... That does set them apart from other immigrant groups, and that's the reason why there were that many papers. It was a very rich journalistic time for for all of New York, but specifically for immigrant groups.
0: The population was huge.
1: It was, and it stayed steadily growing until 1921, 1923, when the quotas were instituted. The papers' circulation eventually hit 250,000 which isn't due entirely to how big the immigration was.
0: What is the circulation today?
1: The circulation of the Yiddish forward is probably around four or 5,000. The circulation of the English forward um, is over 30,000 with about 100,000 additional on the web. I actually think that the circulation of the Yiddish forward is much higher than that. People speak about Yiddish as though it's a dying language. It's not dying remotely. In fact, in... Many Orthodox enclaves in New York and elsewhere, Um, there are many, many, many little Yiddish speakers being born every minute. There is not secular Yiddish. That is what I think where your numbers have gone down. But there's Orthodox, many Orthodox communities speak Yiddish as their native tongue. I have heard a rumor that in, specifically in Brooklyn, there are people on given streets who are designated as the forward- official forward subscriber. They don't want to support our paper by buying it, but one person will get it and apparently pass it down the block. I can't really verify this for obvious reasons, but I've heard it enough to think that there might be a kernel of truth in there.
0: Tell me about the founding editor of the Jewish Daily Forward, Abraham Kahan, and what his mission was.
1: Kahan's mission was to help this mass of immigrants who just gotten off the boat to become American the short version of how to understand it. There were several ways in which he wanted to do that. One was he was a staunch defender um, of trade unionism and believer in democratic socialism, in part because he looked out at the people who were going to be his readers, and they were workers. And he believed that they needed the kind of protection at the time that unions would provide. Um, The other way is teaching them English. He believed that people should at some point assimilate, learn the language of America. More broadly, though, he also taught them about America, about American history. Um, He would have lessons in the paper about Greek and Roman art, about the American presidents. So the paper in some ways became sort of like their teacher, their rabbi, their therapist, their trade union leader. Um, Really, it became all encompassing, just a support system for new immigrants.
0: It wasn't just a newspaper in the traditional sense of the word newspaper. There was fiction and
1: poetry. That's right. The way that I've described it to people is, imagine if you could get the reportage of the Wall Street Journal, along with celebrity coverage of Us Weekly, along with Sports Illustrated, Esquire, Ladies Home Journal, the fiction of Ulysses and Danielle Steele.
0: And Craigslist.
1: And Craigslist. That's right. And and Landers. Obviously, um, we had our most famous feature is the Bintel Brief, which was an advice column. Um, started in the nineteen twenties, I believe. Um, just a wildly popular feature in which people wrote in questions, and our editors answered them. Um, and the questions ran the gamut from my neighbor is Romanian and I can't smel- stand the smell of her cooking, to I don't know what union to join, to my son is a communist and we're socialists and I can't have him over for dinner, um, to my children have become so American that I don't really even know how to talk to them anymore. And how is it pronounced in Yiddish? Forverts.
0: Forverts. Mm-hmm. That's how it was referred to by the folks on the streets of the Lower East Side.
1: And still today, I can't tell you how many people come up to me at when I do book events and say, you're pronouncing it wrong. And I say, not really. Actually, I work for the English paper. It's forward. But yes, forwards.
0: Talking specifically about Mr. Kahan's interest in the labor movement, there was a front page motto at one point in time, the emancipation of workers will be the task of workers themselves.
1: Yes. The idea of the journalism that was practiced in the forward is very different from our idea of journalism today. We have this notion of journalists being objective, of covering things, showing both sides. Kahan's coverage of the labor unions was nothing. There was nothing objective about it. He would frequently write, let's say, about the Cloakmakers' revolt, which was a, a very big rebellion, um, in the actual news coverage, he would say the glorious cloakmakers, the victorious cloakmakers. Um, he really pushed his readers to take part in unions, to take part in protests. He encouraged them to understand that the thing about America was there were lots of opportunities, but you had to take them for yourself. That really was one of the lessons that he tried to drive home in nearly all the coverage. Uh, and this, this also, I should say, extends to um, voting, as well. He encouraged them to vote. There were sign up sheets in the lobby of the Forwards Building on the Lower East Side. There were registration drives. All of politics was the kind of thing he he tried to encourage them to engage on an individual level with American politics.
0: The paper's coverage of the Holocaust is something that needs to be talked about because it covered the Holocaust unlike any other that, newspaper.
1: That's right. Um Deborah Lipstadt, historian, wonderful historian of the Holocaust, writes an essay in our book in which she says that it's time to put to bed the myth that no one knew what was going on during the Holocaust because the paper of record had stories about anti Jewish violence in Europe, starting from day one. Remember that our editors and our writers came from Eastern Europe they knew about the anti-Semitic violence that was going on, and we were covering it as it snowballed into what eventually became the Holocaust. Some of the most poignant coverage um, is not the reportage, although we did have many correspondents on the ground in Eastern Europe. The coverage that is most poignant for me um, are the personal letters that came from people who are experiencing pogroms, who are experiencing the ghetto. Um, We actually have a... Someone smuggled out an armband and a yellow star to the paper, and the paper ran a full-page reproduction of the star and the armband with a note saying, they're making Jews wear this and they're herding them into ghettos. It really was actually a traumatic for our writers, and if you read the coverage day-to-day in the paper, you, you hear them getting hoarse, literally.
0: I'm curious, and I'm not sure if you have the answer to this question, but why not publish The Forward at this point in time in English? Because the mainstream newspapers weren't covering the Holocaust like this.
1: The Forward did try to have an English page in the 1920s. It was very short-lived, ran about three years. Um, and it was essentially what we think, we think it was for college kids, people who were, um, whose parents were immigrants. They were probably immigrants as young children, but they were going off to American colleges. The question about whether or not they should have published this in English um, in the 30s and 40s is is a good one. I don't I don't know. I would have to ask about whether or not there were discussions of that. But you have to realize that when you're experiencing something in a given moment, so many ideas could could have come to you. Um, I think that they were just so concerned about getting the information out there in whatever language was possible, and Kahan was fairly powerful. I think that he had gone to whatever politicians he could go to. It's just if people didn't want to hear it, they wouldn't hear it. And and also I should say, remember that this is probably the the best answer to your question. Other newspapers knew. They just were covering it differently.
0: They buried it.
1: Right. They buried it. So what would be the point? What would be the point of us, of us printing the exact same story in English that the Times did? On our front page, who was going to read us and not the Times? Um, so there were newspapers that would cover, and you know, there's actually an excellent history of the Times during the Holocaust um, put out a few years back that made the great point. If you have a story about 500,000 people being murdered on the bottom of page A8 and it's 200 words, people actually subconsciously don't believe it because they imagine that if it, if it really did happen it would be splashed all over the front page. There are subtle, there's a subtle relationship between newspapers and their readers, um, and I think that we just, we couldn't account for the English language papers.
0: In addition to the stories that were written about the Holocaust, the photos that the paper printed are quite remarkable. There's one in the book, page 173, a chilling photograph of a boy who was rescued from an extermination camp in Germany.
1: It's terrifying. We also have pictures of snapshots that were smuggled out to us from a pogrom very early on in the 19... If it's not 1919, it's it's the very early 1920s. They're horrifying. You know, we talk about knife-wielding Cossacks as though we know what that is. Until you see a picture of the victim of a knife-wielding Cossack, you don't know how horrifying it could be. And we have snapshots that were smuggled out to us that are just actually... Really nightmarish.
0: Let's talk specifically about this book and this is some heavy book. It's a gorgeous book, a living lens, photographs of Jewish life from the pages of the forward. Now there are some chilling, disturbing photographs as we mentioned, but there are also many lighthearted and funny photographs. Forty thousand photographs in the archive.
1: It is the most amazing story, I, I have to say. We the forward lived for many years on East Broadway. And when the forward experienced a decline, starting with the quotas, um, immigrants fewer immigrants were coming here from Eastern Europe, so we had fewer readers. Um, and then obviously starting after the Holocaust, the paper itself contracted, um, our coverage contracted. And like a lot of places in the city in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, the Lower East Side sort of went to hell in a handbasket. Um, in 1974, the forward decided to move out of the Lower East Side for starters, we didn't need that big building, which is now beautiful, multi-million dollar condominiums like everything else in Manhattan.
0: We should point out that it was once the tallest and the most recognizable building on the Lower East Side.
1: Yes, and I should tell encourage all le- listeners to go down and see the building because it's still a very tall building for that neighborhood, and it's beautiful. It's just been redone. It's actually a gorgeous site. Um, so in 1974, the Forward moved out of the Lower East Side, and at the time we had all of our archives in metal filing cabinets. The journalists working for the paper, which at the time was only in Yiddish, looked at these pictures and they thought, these are pictures of people that they knew, places that were familiar. So they decided they just were going to take the metal filing cabinets and stick them in the basement of our new building on 33rd Street. Nothing was done with them for decades. And In 1990, a Wall Street Journal editor named Seth Lipsky decided to start an English edition of The Forward. It is not a translated edition. It's a separate paper. And his staff was mainly 20 and 30-year-olds, young Americans, college educated. And they breathed new life into the building to some extent. Um, But they also started to interact with the people on the Yiddish Forward staff. In 1997, we were planning our 100th anniversary. I wasn't at the paper yet. And someone said to someone on the Yiddish side, it's our anniversary. Do we have any pictures of this paper? It's 100. Um, And the person said, well, I don't know. You could check in the archive. And the other guy from the English Forward said, we have an archive? And he was walked down to the basement and a door was opened and there were just, I don't know, maybe 20 metal filing cabinets that turned out to house 40,000 photos stretching back to the 1890s. Um, and it is my personal Hanukkah miracle that the photos were in such great shape. They really, they, for all intents and purposes, they should have been in basically destroyed. But they're in great condition.
0: You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning. I'm George Boraki. My guest this morning is Alana Newhouse. She's the arts and culture editor of the Jewish newspaper The Forward. The paper was founded on the Lower East Side of Manhattan more than 100 years ago. Alana is also the editor of a new book called A Living Lens, Photographs of Jewish Life from the Pages of the Forward. How do you go about sifting through 40,000 photographs and coming up with 500 for this book?
1: Very delightfully. It was the most amazing process of my life. Um, A lot of work, but it was really rewarding. I have a romantic relationship with the archive at this point. Um, we fight, we get back together. Um, it's really a—it's an astonishing relationship that I've developed. And one of the things that was very fun, I used to work at the archive on the weekends, sifting through stuff, and I, I worked with an incredible archivist, a woman named Hannah Pollock, who just knew the archive back and forth. But when I would go through the the folders myself, I would want to give up because I would think, you know... We only have 540 photos to put in this book. I have more than enough to choose from. I don't need to go through the rest of these. And then every time I'd want to give up, the archive would turn out something incredible. I remember one weekend, I was sitting there and I thought, that's it. I'm done. I'm not going through anymore. My fingers are black. I'm definitely breathing in a chemical that I shouldn't be breathing in. At which point I found a series of snapshots of a bunch of socialist leaders from New York um, at an Indian reservation. Um, trying to teach the Native Americans socialism. And they're in their starch white shirts and their pants, um, and the Native Americans have given them their headdresses to wear, and I just thought this is hilarious. I mean, who would ever think of this? Um, The other story, which I tell in, in my essay, is about the time that I wanted to give up, and I opened up one folder... And it was a folder um, labeled Jacobson. And inside that folder was a picture of Harry Truman with the partner in the haberdashery that he owned before he got into politics, a man named Edward Jacobson, who was his very close friend and a Jewish confidant of his. And along with a letter from the vice president, he was at the time the vice president about to become the president, uh, wishing Jacobson luck in the new store in St. Louis. And I just thought to myself, in what universe is this filed under Jacobson? And that's when I knew I had to continue.
0: Some of my favorite photographs in the book depict everyday life. On page 34, for example, we see the role of girls and women in the community. There's one picture of girls at a New York public school practicing the toothbrush drill. First of all, what is the toothbrush drill?
1: I imagine that it was... um, you had the New York City public school system had many, many immigrants and they clearly wanted to teach them hygiene or they had to teach them hygiene. One of the things about that photo is I sort of, I don't know what Kahan wanted with that photo. I don't know whether or not he actually chose that photo. But in looking through the whole archive, I did get the sense that he was trying to subtly use the photographs to send a message to his to his readers. And the message I think with that photograph and also with the photograph that's on the same page, is it's okay if you don't know. It's okay if you don't know how to brush your teeth. We're going to teach you. There's a way to learn in this country. You don't have to feel out of sorts. You don't have to feel like an unwashed new immigrant. There are ways to learn. Um, The other photo on the same page is of elderly women learning English at the National Council for Jewish Women, and the tagline on the caption actually says, You're never too old to learn. Same thing. I think he was trying to teach his readers, his elderly readers, that they didn't have to walk around the streets of New York stuck without knowing how to engage with American society. They could go out and learn English even at their advanced age.
0: You're never too old to learn, but you also grow up very quickly on the Lower East Side. And there's a picture, I believe, page 128, an adorable picture of a little boy with a cigar in his mouth.
1: Yeah, I don't, you know... We think that that was probably staged. Um, I can't imagine even in those times somebody giving—he looks three years old. Um, I can't imagine somebody giving a three-year-old a cigar, but it is an adorable picture. It makes everyone smile.
0: Kahan wanted people to send in their pictures. He urged families to send in their family photographs, and there are pictures in there of couples celebrating their anniversaries.
1: One of the pillars of Kahan's mission was to make people feel like their newspaper was a member of their family. And one of the ways to do that was to make them feel like their living room could be seen in our paper. Our paper was going to come into their homes. They were going to come into our home. So what he did was he said, send in your family photos, bar mitzvah, anniversary, wedding, um, and we'll print them you can see yourself in the National Jewish Newspaper. It made for a very, what we call, very Hamisha environment for this newspaper. People felt very, very intimate, very close with it. At the same time that the paper maintained the gravitas of its reportage, of its opinion, of its fiction, as you say, we were sort of the high-low paper. We were down in, in the street with people and we were in their homes, and we were also in the palaces of power, reporting from there, I think that that combination is what made the paper The, the what it was. It, it's what made it endure and what made it become the voice of a whole generation.
0: Tell me more about the early staff of the forward beyond the founding editor, Abraham Kahan. There was actually also individuals involved here, one who won a Nobel Prize for Literature.
1: That's right. Isaac Pesheva Singer, who, um, along with Kahan, is probably the most identifiable member of the forward staff in history. Beshevis Singer is a really interesting character. He, it was actually his brother who was on our staff first, Israel Joshua. And as anti-Semitism and the snowball, as I say, of the Holocaust was rolling across Europe, IJ um, decided to bring his younger brother, Isaac Beshevis over here. And he enlisted Kahan to try to help him get a visa for his brother. Kahan brought Beshevis Singer over here. Um, he brings him over at the time actually his name I don't I don't think he had taken the name Beshevis yet, which was his mother's maiden name. Um at the time he brought him over he took a look at his fiction and he said, This isn't Kahan said, This isn't very good. But you can come and work as a journalist. You can do our advice column, you can do journalistic stuff, you can profiles so that's what singer did for for many years and then it was actually not until after the holocaust and actually after the, till the death of his brother which was in the 40s that singer started to write very different fiction and Cahan took a look at it and said this is actually good stuff so khan started publishing singer's fiction um, i believe in the late 1940s 19 19- 53, Saul Bellow and Irving Howe, who were both readers of the forward, they were both native Yiddish speakers, were sitting in an apartment, I think it was Howe's, and Bellow said to him, hey, did you see this story in the forward? The two of them translated it on the spot and brought it to, I believe, Bellow's editor at Partisan Review, who ran the story. The story was Gimple the Fool. um, And that is how Besheva Singer's history in English language began. Within a few years, he was publishing in the New Yorker and Harper's and Playboy. Everything that he ever published, though, was published first in Yiddish and first in the Forward, and then translated into whatever language it was going to be translated into.
0: And who were the early photographers?
1: We had several photographers. We had some staff photographers um, and some professional photographers. In fact, Roman Vishniak, who later became quite famous for his pictures of Eastern Europe, was one of our photographers. Um, a vanished world was originally published by the Ford Association. Um, I, I believe it was a decade before he published it, if not more. There was also a man named Alter Katsizna, another one, um, another photographer named Kipnis. Some of them are, are are actually they're very different from Vishniak. It's a little less nostalgic looking, but. Katsista's pictures in particular are exceptional, um, very clear, very um, beautiful. They all functioned in different areas of Eastern and Central Europe, um, but all very, very accomplished photographers in their own right.
0: Alana, before World War I, the newspaper instituted the so-called Gallery of Missing Husbands, and you document that in the book. What is the Gallery of Missing Husbands?
1: Immigrant life was hard for everyone, but it was particularly hard for men who came to this country um, and were required to support families without knowing the language, without having a job. So many of them buckled under the pressure and left their families, abandoned their families. It actually became an epidemic on the Lower East Side of men leaving their wives and their families. And it was particularly difficult for women to have to support a whole family on their own. Kahan thought this was terrible. He was personally offended by this. So he decided he was going to root them out. And he published a gallery of the disappeared men, which was essentially a series of mugshots of men who had abandoned their wives. And the, from what I understand, nobody really knows whether or not um, any of these husbands returned to their families. But apparently it did have a prescriptive Effect in that many men said in interviews later that they didn't abandon their families at times of crisis out of fear of appearing in the gallery of the disappeared men. It essentially became a form of excommunication. Kahan encouraged shopkeepers to put up that day's gallery by their register and not sell to those men if they would come in. It, It really was a communal effort to fix what he considered to be a... A terrible trend happening.
0: Many of the photographs in A Living Lens come from the Sunday Supplement of the Forward, which was implemented in 1923.
1: This is another area in which Kahan was a pioneer, newspaperman. Kahan was on his way back from Palestine, what was then Palestine in the 1920s, on a trip with one of his editors. And he said to one of his editors, we think it was Kahan's idea. He said, people love pictures, Let's create a section just devoted to pictures. That is the reason for the archive. It's the reason we have that, as many photos as we do, because Kahan started a weekly Sunday supplement known colloquially among readers as the Rodo, which stands for the Roto-Gravure, which was the printing process that was used. It was sepia-colored. It, was different from, it looked different from the paper itself. And people would read it just to find out what editors had picked that week. It was a real... Curio, in many ways, that was also the place where they would have lessons, let's say, on Greek and Roman art, they would have pictures of different Greek and Roman sculptures, um, along with captions, they would teach readers, or pictures of all the American presidents so far, pictures of the streets of Paris, let's say, it really was an education, it was almost like school, but in a fun, in a really, really fun way.
0: There's an essay in the book that talks about film and also delves into the history of Jewish folks in the entertainment industry, a very rich history, and also many photographs to represent that history.
1: If the forward had two pillars, one was politics and the other one was arts, God really believed in, in socialism and trade unionism, but he also believed in theater, in literature. And they served the same purpose, which is to say, if you wanted to be a civilized member of society, you needed to engage with both. One of the things that I found astonishing is Khan became a very, very powerful man in New York and in American politics and in labor politics. And even so, he would go down to Second Avenue to the theater district, and he would review films himself with his byline. And I, I think the message is that he was sending to readers was it is important enough for the editor-in-chief of the Yiddish Forward to go down and to review it himself. That means it's important. Um, So he really did believe in art. He believed in art and he believed in arts coverage.
0: And today you are the arts and culture editor. How do you compare yourself?
1: Oh, I could never, ever compare to Kahan. Um, It would take me another 110 years even to come close.
0: Alana Newhouse is the arts and culture editor of The Forward. She is also the editor of A Living Lens, photographs of Jewish life from the pages of The Forward. Alana, thanks so much for coming in. You're welcome. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. A Living Lens, photographs of Jewish life from the pages of The Forward is published by W.W. Norton & Company. Remember, you can get past editions of Cityscape and find out about our podcast at WFUV.org. I'm George Bolarki. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.